Well, good morning. Why don't we get started in the message? So as our custom, why don't we stand and read Luke 16, uh, verse 1. So Luke 16, 1. Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. The manager said to himself, well, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. He began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he'd acted shrewdly for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of what, that which is in others, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Let's pray. Father, we come to you uh, once again in our series on parables. We look forward to the truth that you're going to teach us, because we started this to get to know you in terms of your heartbeat and your thought life. We wanted to know... What was important to the disciples and the people listening 2,000 years ago? Because that truth was very relevant for us today as well. And we know that the Bible is timeless in terms of truth. So we ask God that you're, through your spirit you would reveal to us what this parable is saying. So that we can learn your heart and your mindset towards life as believers. And we can honor you with the way we live. So we look forward to our time now. Amen. Well, welcome once again to our sermon series on parables. Today is the seventh parable in our series. Now for me, uh, personally, I don't know about you, but this one has been the hardest parable I've ever tried to solve in my many years as a Christian. I've tried multiple times to make sense of this over the last probably 10 years with no success. Uh, just even two weeks ago, I was uh, having a conversation with a couple of pastors, trying to work this through what, what it meant. And none of us, we kept going back and forth as to what was going on here. So I thought, why not tackle this once and for all and be forced to deal with it in a more like practical way? Because I can't just keep year after year trying to figure it out and have no answer. So thankfully, um, I think I finally figured it out. 
and I'm looking forward to discussing it with you. And it, I didn't just do it without help. I had to have multiple discussions with people and the commentaries I read were very helpful as well. So hopefully uh, the truth that I've seen will be obvious to you as well. The first thing I want you to know by way of introduction is that this parable actually is talking about money. I say this because a lot of Jesus' parables use money as an illustration, but they're often the money is used to illustrate spiritual truths. Remember the parable of the ten, ten minas we saw uh, a few weeks ago? It had nothing to do with money. The, the parable had to do with how we uh, resource ourselves as believers in terms of the way we function and, um, as Christians. So it had to do with character and, and the way we manifested our lives that way and how we use the gospel message. Here, um, interestingly enough though, the teaching is actually on finances and how we use resources. The second thing I want you to notice about this is who the parable is directed towards. In 16.1, he says, Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man. So the primary audience here are followers of Christ. Now while this is important is that this parable then is for us. This is not for the, the, the non-Christian in the world who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ or follow his ways. This is a parable directed towards Christian people and how to use money. And so we've had lots of conversations in our church about finances over the years, um, but this one is a pretty, uh, pretty incredible parable because it's going to hit in the, uh, uh, some key areas here in finances. So let's waste no more time and we'll dive in. In the opening verses, Jesus introduces two main characters. Let's look at this now. There was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I've heard about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. Now the first character here is the rich man. There's not a lot of detail given about this guy in the passage, but there's a couple observations that I want you to notice to, to show you how wealthy this guy actually was. So he, like, there's, there's different levels of wealth in the world, right? This guy was extremely, extremely wealthy. In verse 1, first of all, notice that he even had a manager. So this person had become so wealthy in his business practices, he no longer had the time to run his own day-to-day -day operations. He no longer was the one who attended the meetings. He was never the one to come up anymore with the market strategies to get his product on the market. He wasn't the one going to the golf course, taking clients for, for a, a game, trying to smooth them to make business deals. He was now able to come to a place where he could have a hands-off approach to his business. He, was, um, he hired somebody to basically handle all his business affairs, and this guy was there to do all the transactions on his behalf. The second thing I want you to notice about this guy's wealth is actually found in verse 6 and 7. Notice the amounts of, of uh, debts that were owed to him here. He talks about having a hundred uh, measures of oil and, uh, let me see, he's going to find it. Yeah, hundred measures of oil and then he also has a uh, hundred measures of wheat. Now, this means nothing to you and I at this point, but reading the commentaries, I found out that 100 measures of olive oil is approximately 1,000 gallons. 
1,000 gallons. That would have taken three years in Israel's culture to produce. Three years of work and wages and time to produce that. That's how much was owed the rich man. Another was 100 measures of wheat. That was 1,000 bushels. That would have taken approximately 8 to 10 years to produce in their, in their farming days. So we're dealing with huge amounts. And that's just two of the debtors. Who knows how many other people that he had as a businessman working for him. So this guy is, is extremely, extremely wealthy. That is way beyond the average farmer or businessman back in those days. How about the manager? What do we learn from him? Well, we're going to learn a lot about this man as we go on. But the key observation from verse 1 is notice that he's been described here as squandering his possessions. That's what he's described as. Squandered is to waste, to be wasteful. Okay, so if you squander something, you're wasteful. It's interesting, it's the same word used the prodigal son that we looked at a couple weeks ago in terms of what he did with the father's estate. Look at 15.13, because it's just the parable before this one. He says, And many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and he squandered his father's estate with loose living. He wasted it. So this guy had taken everything that the master owned, who he'd given control over his business for and to do transactions for him, and just basically just squat, like destroyed his, his business <laughs> in many ways. All right? So the problem was for this guy is the boss found out about it. The rich man heard about it secondhand. He says, he called him and said, what's this I hear about you? So someone had obviously come and told him that this is what's going on. So he calls him into his office, basically, tells him to give an account, and as a result, he says, you're fired. You're, you're terminated. You can no longer be my manager. Now what's interesting about the manager's response is that when he heard he was fired, there's no record in the passage here of him trying to defend himself. There's no record of him making excuses for his actions. He accepted the reality for what it was. But their manager also recognized the loss of employment put him in a real predicament. This guy was in real trouble now, in real hot water. Look at verse 3. The manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. See, the, the manager's first problem was with the loss of his job, that it meant that he had no income to provide for himself. And here was the problem for this guy. He was a blue-collar worker, not a white-collar worker. Right? He's a blue-collar guy, not a white-collar guy. So to him, manual labor was out of the question. I'm not strong enough to dig. And his status in society meant that he wasn't going to become a beggar. I'm too ashamed to beg. Those are the only two ways, when he's lost his job, to make a living now. Who's going to hire a guy when the world finds out about what he's done? No one's going to employ that guy. He's, and so he's, he won't even take a ditch digging job, and he knows he won't beg. So he's got no money. The other issue, though, and the biggest issue for this guy, was he realized he had no place to rest his head now. He had no home. Look at verse 4. This is critical for him. He says... I know what I shall do so that when I'm removed from the management, 
He says, people will welcome me into their homes. So here's the key for this guy. When he loses his job, the most important thing for him is he wants to be welcomed into somebody else's home so that he can be provided for. Now, evidently then, the rich man must have provided him with lodging as part of his employment, right? Because if he had his own house and then went to work, he'd have a place to rest his head. But he doesn't. The job that he received came with privileges of a free house and accommodation and food and lodging. So when he lost his job, he lost a place to live. Now this is really important for me. This observation is key for me in unlocking the meaning of this parable. The primary concern for the manager here was the need to secure a home. The need to secure a home and have an advantageous future. That was key for this guy. But more importantly, or just as importantly, is the manner, though, in which he went about securing that. Look at verses 5 to 7. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors and began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write down eighty. What the manager did here was ingenious. It was brilliant. What he did here was try to get in the good books with his debtors. You see, the master's debtors had no idea yet that he'd been fired. You catch that? He went, after he got fired, that was a private meeting over here, he goes straight to the debtors and talks to them. They don't know he's been fired yet. So from their perspective, he's still employed and has the right to act on the authorities of the master. Pretty cool. So he used the opportunity while everyone thought he was still employed to act on the master's behalf to reduce their debts so that they would feel indebted to him personally and ultimately open up their homes to him so he could have a future for himself. I mean, think about it. It was ingenious. It was a great deal for the debtors. It reduced their debts by 50% and 20% respectively. Imagine how grateful you'd be if you owned a vehicle or you were doing a, or owned a business transaction and someone came up to you and says, what's your bill? And you said, well, I owe, you know, $50,000. I'll tell you what, my master's willing to make it twenty-five. dollars You'd be like, sweet, twenty-five dollars in my pocket? Or even 20%, getting $10,000 off? You'd be ecstatic. You'd go home and tell your spouse, I had a great day at work. I had a great day at work. You don't realize how much more money we have for Christmas this year. So even though the manager would have known what he did was unethical and that his master, the rich man, would eventually find out. I mean, he's going to find out, right? Even though that was the case, it didn't stop him from acting in this way because at this point in his life, he had nothing to lose. He was already fired. So this was not about his concern for the master. This is about making sure he had friends in place to secure his future. I'll say that again. This is about making sure he had friends in place to secure his future. It had nothing to do with a concern for anyone else. Now I want to picture the scene. Pretend you're the master and you find out about this. What would your response be? 
Those of you in this church who are high on justice, I know what your response would be. <laughs> Those of you who emotionally like to turtle, <laughs> I know what your response would be. A lot of tears, a lot of ice cream, lots of Netflix in the bed, right? How come when I said those two things, I saw some of you smiling and you're smiling? That's perfect. <laughs> I'd be a bit of both probably. I'd be mad and then need ice cream. <laughs> what are you laughing about, Kelly? <laughs> so, yeah, here's the thing. That would be the expected response from the master. But look at how he responds in verse 8. Totally different than what you're expecting. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. He praised him. Praised him. Didn't throw him in jail. Didn't have him beaten. Didn't do anything. Just praised him. Now this verse puzzles a lot of people in the Christian community, including pastors, commentators, like theologians, and the rest of us who are just lay people. They find it hard to believe that Jesus would be in favor of a master admiring someone for such unethical behavior. But here's the critical observation you can't miss. It's not the manager's dishonest behavior that is being praised. It's his shrewdness. The word shrewd means to be crafty, clever. I, my phrase I'm using is cunning wisdom. Cunning wisdom, like a fox. So although the manager's actions showed no concern for the rich man, the rich man couldn't help but commend his employee for his foresight and how he wanted to avoid disaster and make sure he had an advantageous future for himself. He was commended for his wisdom and how he used another person's resources to secure friends to make sure he had an eternal home, or not an eternal home, a, 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 not eternal home, a practical home to live in in this world. That's an incredible thing to notice. One of my commentaries worded it really well. He manipulated what resources were temporarily in his power to achieve ends that were to his long-term advantage. Brilliantly worded. And so Jesus makes an interesting comment about this in verse 8. After he, the unrighteous manager is praised, he says this, For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Now Jesus' reference to the sons of this age and sons of light is a reference to people who don't follow Christ and those who follow Christ. People who believe in God and people who don't believe in God. 1 Thessalonians 5.5, 5, Ephesians 5.8 makes these distinctions. So this is Jesus' point. People who don't follow the Lord are often more clever and resourceful with the worldly wealth at their disposal when it comes to securing an advantageous future for themselves, even though it's temporal, than sons of light who have an eternal future to prepare for. So these guys have a temporal future where the, the best they can do is store up treasures on earth, but they're more clever and wise and strategic in how they use money to secure this temporal future 
than believers are in terms of how they use money, knowing they have an eternal home where they can store up treasures from heaven. That's his point. Jesus is saying this, it ought to be the other way around. We've got it reversed, church. We've got it reversed. And so we're to take a lesson from the unjust manager. See, the parallel is uncanny. Actually, I'll read verse 9. He says, I say to you, you believers now, you followers of mine, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, that is being the, the money, when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. This is the verse that I've never been able to figure out for a decade. <laughs> it has just baffled me over and over and over, even two weeks ago. And I think here's the answer, based on what we've learned so far. Notice the parallel. The unjust manager used worldly money to gain friends to secure a home in this world for, uh, so we can have a secured future. He's saying, you people then are to do the same thing. Use worldly money to make friends to secure an eternal home in the future. So what's he really saying? As Christians, we are to use the world's system of money and its finances to advance God's kingdom here and now so that we will have a place to go to in glory. And we will receive eternal awards. And we can receive eternal um, benefits there. Ones that will have long-lasting value. Invest in ways now with the world's financial system that promotes and proclaims the gospel message. Put your money into those areas of life. Not like building your kingdom, building his kingdom. Put your money there. Unfortunately, he says, but the world is better in strategizing and maneuvering money to secure their future than we are ours. <coughs> Here's the thing that's hard here. So, how do we do that? Jesus doesn't tell us. So he leaves it to guys like me to come up with what I think that looks like. And now we're going to open the scriptures and look at the ways we do this. First way we use money of the world to secure friends so that when the, when the uh, secure friends so that they will welcome us into an eternal dwelling is by doing this. We financially support those who teach and preach the gospel. We financially support those who teach and preach the gospel. Paul makes a really cool, cool um, comment in Philippians 4. Listen to this. You Philippians know in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you. Yikes, what an indictment. But then he says this, Except, uh, For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that it be more accredited to your account. I, you know what? In eternity, there will be a credit to their account. 
I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. You know what's really cool? It's perfect timing today. That, that language there, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, in the temple, priests offered incense, and the incense, the smoke, would go up as like prayers to God, an acceptable sacrifice. Look at, look at like that little candle there, what that's doing. <laughs> that's exactly the picture that is with money for Paul when Epaphroditus brought the gift. This money that's given to Paul, who's in prison, and I believe he's in prison at this point. Uh, well, even if he isn't, I, I, should check, I should be careful on that one. But whether he is or isn't, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that the money was, that was given to him to support him in ministry, to preach and teach the gospel, to plant churches, to be a missionary, was an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. That will be credited to their account. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.14. Talks about different illustrations about how oxes deserve to eat from the, from the, the grass when they, when they uh, thresh the, the grass or the, the harvest and whatnot. He says, in the same way the Lord has commanded, commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So the very man that says, this money I received to do what I need to do, to invest in advancing God's kingdom. This worldly wealth, this worldly wealth that I just received to do this is exactly how we're to function in advancing God's kingdom. You want to talk about shrewd and clever and thinking of ways outside the box to invest money to do this? I got a really cool email in my inbox three days ago from the bishops the Bishop Cliff who preached here, you've met him. The assistant, his assistant, Kalisha Peters. Check this out. This is unreal. Now, the Lorne Park Foundation, by the way, is, a, is a, a, an organization within the denomination that gives people money for education and schooling. So just so you know, I've gone to Regent College twice. My tuition was fully covered the first time and this time I just went. So my first course was 1500 bucks. My second course was 500 bucks. I've been given $2,000 for education. My first degree, I paid that out of my own pocket. My second degree is fully funded by the denomination because of the Lorne Park Foundation. I, I, I mean, I don't know any pastor who hasn't paid for their own education. I pay, like, we, we pay for me to fly there and stuff, but I don't pay tuition because of this, but watch this, shrewdness, using this world's money. The Lorne Park Foundation is pleased to announce that it has received the largest gift in its history from the estate of the late Carmen and Louisa Bell. An amount of over $500,000 has been bequeathed to the LPF for its educational ministries for use as may be determined by the LPF Board of Directors. At its meeting on November 18, 2019, the LPF Board of Directors decided how to use this generous bequest. I got 500 bucks. I'm going to get, when I go back to school, a portion of that money. You talk about shrewd. Now, here's what's really cool. This is another conversation I'll have to have with you privately. I just learned this about a few months ago. Do you know that if you donate in your will part of your money 
to things like this, that that's a major tax advantage to not only you and the kingdom, but a tax advantage too. When you get when you inherit, get inherit estates, you have to pay on that. There's money you have to pay in capital gains and things like that. If you donate part of your your inheritance to to uh, a thing like this, the government can't touch that money, and it doesn't change how much your kids get. <laughs> it's an incredible way to do it. It's like tithing, right? You get a, the government gives you a, a receipt and says that comes off to your income. It's the same type of thing. And those of you who are anti like government, you don't want to get their money. Consider what the late Carmen and Louisa Bell did. Make that part of your estate planning. And if you want to talk about that more, I can give you the phone number of the woman to talk to who can walk you all through this. These girls, or sisters, or whoever they were, I don't know, they know how to be shrewd. They know how to be shrewd. Talk about advancing the kingdom of God. Another way we can do this, we can practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. This is really cool in, in the sec, uh, John, 3 John 5 to 8. This guy named Gaius is opening up his homes to traveling missionaries. So he's in this particular city. He hears about people coming. He opens up his home so that they can have free food and lodging, have a nice place to rest, and they can go out into the next country or next village or next city they want to go to. And they're basically, like, he's like a transient motel. But he's saving the church, that these pastors and missionaries, money by doing this. And he says this, Dear friend, you are being faithful to God when you are care for the traveling teachers who pass through, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church here of your loving friendship. Please continue providing for such teachers in a manner that pleases God. That's good, just like the acceptable sacrifice from Philippians 4. For they are traveling for the Lord. Another amazing statement. Uh, and they accept nothing from people who are not believers. In other words, not taking any outside support for this. So we ourselves should support them so that we can be their partners as they teach the truth. So when Graham and Serena came here, every single one of us should have been phoning them saying, you want to stay with me? Want to stay with me? Want to stay with me? That's the example of how it looks. Now in fairness, some of you don't know them and so whatever, but you get the idea. Any missionary or someone comes to town, we need to be opening up our homes and we're partnering with the Lord and advancing the kingdom of God. And the people that come to Christ, the people that come to Christ through our support of investing in pastors and missionaries, uh, both locally and abroad and all these types of things, when people come to Christ, we've made friends. We've made friends. Right? So that when they die and go to heaven, and we die and go to heaven, they can welcome us into eternal dwellings. We've used money to bring people to Christ, and then when we meet them in glory, they will embrace us. That's exactly what he's saying in verse 9. That's what primarily Jesus has in mind. There is one other thought, though, and this is secondary, but I will mention it. But the reason I bring it up is because <clears throat> I wonder if friendship here, making friends, is not just about bringing non-believers to Christ. It's also about how we treat one another within the community. And the reason I say this is, be, well, there's a couple of things why, but major reason why is this. There's passages in Scripture that talk about how we can, we can bank eternal treasures in heaven by treating each other well. Look at Matthew 25, 35 to 40. Now here's the scene, the scene is judgment. The world's come to an end. 
and it's judgment time. He separates the sheep from the goats. And it's basically the, the, the followers of Jesus from the non-followers of Jesus. And, and he's going to give them a welcome into his presence. And the ones that are sheep that get in to glory, look at their reasons for why. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you come visit me. And the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? That's a great comment. I mean, when have you ever fed Jesus? You're 2,000 years removed from him. Now listen to this. Uh, yeah, when... Yeah, when did we invite you in or need any clothes and clothe you? When did we see you in sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, tell, truly I tell you this, whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. When you took care of another Christian's needs, you took care of Jesus Christ. There will be rewards for that behavior, especially in light of 1 Timothy 6, 16-19. The instruction here is to rich people. He says, do not fix your hope on riches, but fix it on God. Okay? Then he makes this command. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. With what? Their money. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. The, sec like the new kingdom, the glory, the future, heaven, the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That's what real life is. It's the eternal life, not this life. Rich people, use your money. Use your money, be willing to be generous and share. You will lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. You will advance God's kingdom. You make friends that way. John MacArthur says it this way, the relationships gained through such investments will enrich heaven for eternity. Nothing else we do with our money will last forever. Some of you might be thinking this, well, I'd like to do that, but I don't really have much. Or, I know I should be doing that, but you don't know how things are so tight right now, so I can't make any efforts forward to advance God's kingdom. <coughs> that sounds logical, and it pulls on a lot of our heartstrings, but Jesus doesn't buy it one bit. Read verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. You see Jesus' point, especially in verse 10? It's not about how much you do or don't have that determines your generosity. It's your heart 
that determines where that is and where that devotion lies. He who is faithful in a very little thing, the context is money, I don't have much. I know you don't, but if you're faithful in very little, you'll also be faith, very unfaithful or faithful if you have a ton. If you have very much, you'll be, and you're faithful with that, you'll also be faithful if you have very little. So it's, it doesn't matter which way you go. The point is this, faithful and generous people are faithful and generous with money whether they have a little or a lot. Unfaithful people who are not generous will be unfaithful and not generous with money whether they have a little or a lot. A great example is the widow in Luke 21. Jesus is watching the rich put the money in the temple treasury and she goes and puts in two copper coins and he says, quote, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put more in than all of them. Now, yeah, for they all, they gave out of their surplus into the offering, but she did so out of her poverty. See, according to Jesus, it's not one's circumstances that dictates whether one will use finances to advance God's kingdom. It's not the circumstances. It's character. It's our devotion. It's who we serve, who we love more. In the ancient world, when you were a slave, you only had one master. Two people didn't own you. One person owned you, and you had to serve them only. Fully committed, fully devoted, show them love only. You couldn't split your loyalties. There's no such thing in that kingdom. Jesus is saying this. You can't be devoted to advancing your kingdom and devoted to advancing my kingdom at the same time. You can't do it. It's impossible. Now, I want to be very, very clear. Don't misinterpret what Jesus is saying. He's not opposed to being wealthy. He's not opposed to money. <coughs> it's not sinful. Some of the most godly men in the Bible are, were extremely wealthy. Job was richer than all of us put together in this church. Abraham, richer than all of us put together in this church. David, same thing. So if wealthy and money is, to, is sinful and bad in God's eyes, then these men are in real trouble. All of these men receive huge commendation from God in terms of their character. The issue is not being wealthy and not with money. The issue is, where does the devotion lie? Is it going to be to build up the kingdom of God, and that's our priority, by the way I mentioned here in the church, or is our kingdom and our temporal wealth the key? Where are we going to store up treasures? On earth or in heaven? This is the issue for the Lord. If we're going to do this church, it's going to require a major self-examination and challenge us to make shifts as to what is a priority in terms of the way we use worldly wealth to advance the kingdom of God. So what can we learn? Here's the point of the parable. In light of eternity, 
followers of Christ need to be wise in using the financial resources they have for advancing God's kingdom. In light of eternity, followers of Christ need to be shrewd in how they use the world's system of money for God's purposes to get the gospel out there, to make friends, use our resources to, to bring people to Christ so that when, they, when we all die, they will welcome us into glory. We have a responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ. Number two, I love this one. Our starting wealth is irrelevant to whether we can advance God's kingdom. <laughs> he who is faithful in a very little thing, right, will also be faithful in much. Notice that you can be faithful in a very little thing or unfaithful in a very little thing. The amount you have is irrelevant. It's faithfulness that's irrelevant. If God can take man, like make bread and, and quail out of thin air to feed Israel, surely the little bits of things that we do can be multiplied by God in ways we cannot even imagine. But if we don't even give Him any little thing as a trust issue between us and the Lord to work with. This is really good news for all of us, right? No more excuses. He doesn't care about how much we have or don't have. He cares about how we steward it, how we use it. And the key for this will be where our faithfulness and devotion lies. Do you imagine what it's going to be like for these women? When they stand before the Lord, and which they'll have no idea about because they've died, and the Lord says, come here, Carmen, come here, Louisa. Can I tell you how many people came to Christ because of the $500,000? Or how you helped people within the church move forward? Like, there's a guy named Andrew Dexter that, you got to, that was sent to school. They didn't have to pay out of his pocket. Took the burden off Genesis' house. Took the burden off Genesis' house. Because your money was able to pay for that. He even took the burden off his own family. <laughs> and you know what? Andrew went in 2025 and used what he learned at school. And he spoke to this guy named Jim. And Jim came to Christ because of some of the things he had said during that conversation. <laughs> That's the kind of thing we're talking about, church. Lesson three. Final lesson. God is not opposed to us being wealthy, or even towards money for that matter. His concern is that we are generous with it and where our devotion lies. Doesn't care if you're filthy rich. Doesn't even care about the actual physical coins in your pocket. He's not opposed to that. What he is opposed to is when we won't pull the coins out of our pocket to advance his kingdom. And when we are devoted to what's in our pocket more than we are to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he cares about. This parable is unbelievably rich, isn't it? I've been blind to the truth 
for at least 10 years in this parable. And I praise God that my eyes were open this week.